Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia from the committee behind the festival and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the wonderful Sue Orr in conversation with Tessa Nicholson. Sue's latest novel, Loop Tracks, tackles abortion, addiction, ageing, autism and euthanasia against a setting of Wellington's first COVID-19 lockdown. They are big topics, tackled with sensitivity, elegance and humour in a work shortlisted for the 2022 New Zealand Ockham Awards. The 2023 Marlborough Book Festival is being held from July 21 to July 23 and author details will be available soon. For now, please enjoy Sue Orr speaking to Tessa Nicholson. And I'd really like to introduce from Wellington Sue Orr, the author of the book Loop Tracks. Now Loop Tracks is, is a fictional novel that opens in Auckland in 1978 with 16-year-old Charlie who finds herself pregnant. She can't understand how because it's on her first time of having sex, but she has turned out to be pregnant and she's on a flight to Australia to have an abortion. And Sue, you'd like to do a reading now that will sort of set the mood for sure. where the book, how the book starts. Sure, thanks. And thanks, Tessa, for your introduction. Um, okay, so I'm just going to read for, from the first couple of pages to give you a sense of um, Charlie as a 16-year-old. The first time I got on an aeroplane, I was 16 years old and pregnant. I was on my way to Sydney to have my situation sorted out. It was May 1978, and that's what you had to do if you had enough money for the flight and the procedure. Although they didn't say procedure or termination, not as I recall, they definitely hardly ever said abortion. If you ever were going to find yourself in a situation, 1978 was the absolute worst time for it. A year earlier, we had our own clinic right here in Auckland. A year earlier, there would have been no applying for foreign currency and waiting days for it to come through to your local bank, all the while becoming anxiously more pregnant. When the Australian dollars did finally arrive, ordered especially from, for you from the Reserve Bank in Wellington, there would have been no need to skulk around in High Street, waiting for the least busy of business hours before sidling up to the bank counter, signing for them under the beady eye of the teller, inevitably the mother of a person in your class at school. Family holiday? Or is it just you going to Australia? Looking at you over the top of her glasses like she knew all the facts. Sydney? When, in fact, no one knew all the facts. Not the teller, not the Reserve Bank, not even you. Especially not you. An equally fortuitous time would have been in late 1979 when the Auckland Medical Aid Centre reopened. That ideally would have been the sensible time to become pregnant in the back of a red Vauxhall Victor to a boy you'd notionally fallen in love with. The only significant barrier by late 1979 would have been a wall of rabid protesters screaming your murderous credentials at you as you hung your head low and fought your way through them into the clinic. So you started developing a cold on the Monday before the flight loud sneezing and coughing and the like, and by Wednesday you'd be secretly rubbing your eyes, making them red, making them run in unison with your nose, although the nose wasn't running, that part was an illusion. By Thursday no one was surprised when you didn't turn up at school. Everyone knew you'd been coming down with something. 
though not a baby, not it occurred to no one that you might be coming down with one of those. On Friday, when it was universally assumed you were tucked up in bed with a temperature, you were on an early morning Pan Am flight to Sydney from Auckland Airport. You'd be sorted out by that evening and back at school on Monday, still feeling not 100%, thanks, but a lot better, coming right. So what happened in 1978? I mean, this is true. This is a true situation in New Zealand. Mm that if Charlie had been pregnant, she couldn't have had an abortion in New Zealand. Why was that? She couldn't have had a legal abortion in New Zealand. So the history around that period was um, um, in the period 18 months in 78 and the first half of 79, um, political forces, um, church groups managed to... um, create enough protest and enough resistance to a legal abortion in New Zealand that the Yoni Clinic um, shut down. And so this is, this is a period in which a organisation called Sisters Overseas Services established itself in order to um, get... It was, a, it was an underground network, really, right, th- right throughout the country, um, a network of GPs and assisting mostly women would get a woman needing an abortion across to Australia. And so it was all managed um, kind of very very much on the down low. And there were two flights, as I understand it, two flights a week were going Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings. Um, and um, women would go across, stay, and then come back again. And, you know, they'd only been away for a weekend somewhere. Um, so the sisters... That was Dame Margaret Sparrow. That's right. She she was the key um, key person to establish that, and it, it burst into action almost immediately once Incredible that clinic, clinic shut down. Yes. I mean, they did all the organising. They arranged for the women or girls to be picked up at the airport mm. to be taken on the flights. They didn't give them money, no. no, but they helped them. They got the tickets for them, and they arranged. So they had key people. Um, my research has mainly been around the Pan Am flights because um, that's that's the focus of this book. But So they had key people on the counters in the airports that knew why these women were travelling and they had them seated together. They had them down the back of the plane, near the bathrooms, because they're all in the early, very early stages of pregnancy, needing the bathroom. And they had people pick um, up at the other end. They had airline people at the other end to make sure the woman got through... Um, and then the whole process was reversed for the trip home. So in Loop Tracks, the plane that Charlie is on is Pan Am flight, and it actually gets delayed for a huge number of hours mm. on the tarmac. That actually happened? That happened. So the genesis of this book is a friend of mine who was on the plane going to Sydney for, the, for this reason. She did not get off. She stayed on the plane. But she shared her story with me um, um, you know, and as a as a writer, you know, I, I already knew about the flights. I had friends who had, um, when I was a teenager, who who had had to go to Sydney. But she told me her story, and she said, and the flight was delayed for six hours, and the writer and me just, you know, the hair went up on the back of my neck, and I was like, here's my story, because six hours for a young girl sitting on a plane... And at some point, the option is if anyone on this plane, because it's a full commercial flight, it's 
you know, everybody else on the plane is just travelling for, for normal reasons. And they're being offered egg sandwiches and yeah. drinks. And, of course, the um, air hostesses know that the three in the back row are about to have an operation so as they're soon not, as they arrive. Yeah. So they're sort of like, you know, you know you're not allowed to eat, don't you? <laughs> so they can't have any of the food that's offered. Yeah, yeah. So there was a classic moment as a writer where I thought, what if the option came up at some point? You can get off this flight if you want and travel another day. And, you know, there, there, there's the beginning of the story that's, for me. But your friend didn't get off. No, she didn't, no. So she went. So Charlie gets off the plane and then, you know, much to the disgust of her parents who had already scraped and, you know, saved money, gone to a loan shark, she actually wonders how on earth her parents are ever going to be able to pay back the loan shark who lent them the money for their daughter to have an abortion. And there's sort of this quiet disgust that she hasn't gone through with it. Her parents have still got the expense, but they've also still got the baby to worry about. Mm -hmm. And she ends up doing, as a lot of women have done, or young girls have ended up doing, being sent to an elderly relative in Napier, in this Mm -hmm. case, to have the baby, where it's an old auntie of her father's. And she's told, in no uncertain terms, not to stand in front of the window in case anybody walking past sees her body and not to go into the backyard where her neighbours can see her, and certainly not to go to the letterbox. In other words, she has to isolate. I mean, that must have been true of so many. Mm. You know, the abortion would have been an easy option compared to that. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, you know, I think probably that was one of those two options for most schoolgirls, mm. found them, and then, you know, much in, in the same way, come back, resume your normal life, and pretend it didn't happen. I yeah. think the most horrifying thing... In, for me, was the description of when she actually goes into labour and she has the baby and she has to deliver him on her side to ensure that she has no sight of him before he's taken away for an abort- for an adoption. Mm. So she's sideways, so she can't see him even as she delivers him. That mm. just mm. made me cringe. Mm. It seems so incredibly cruel. Um, so from 1978, we leap forward to 2020, and we're in the year of COVID. Yeah. Now, I re- you you said in an interview with Kim Hill that writing for you is not about the destination; it's always about the journey. Mm. And you obviously couldn't have foretold that COVID would come up, and that you could put Charlie as an elderly woman in a situation where COVID was. But we are in 2020. She is a school a junior school teacher, and she's looking after her grandson Tommy whom we don't know where Tommy's come from at this stage, but it is the COVID year. Mm. So I take it you actually wrote this during 2020, the, the finish? Yes, yes, I did. So, uh, you know, like everybody in this room, no one saw COVID coming. And my plan was, at that point, I had written probably um, a first third of the novel, and I had planned to write the remainder of it playing out against the lead-up to the 2020 general election. And that, and I was excited by this idea because I'd established Tommy, who's um, on, the spec, on a spectrum and is very worked up about the politics of the day. So he's a great fan of Jacinda. He's trying to get his head around the euthanasia and the cannabis referendums that were happening that year. And my plan um, was to finish the novel playing out my characters' lives against this landscape that I saw rolling out between March and the end of 2020. 
And you were throwing a real curveball. I was throwing a real curveball. So I put the proposal that that's how I was going to finish the novel to my publisher, Fergus Barrowman. And he said, yeah, that sounds great. Go for it. And, um, you know, I think we had that discussion on the 20th of February from and, and a month later we were in a lockdown, a, lockdown. a thing called a lockdown. Yeah. And so it had... Um, as a writer, I, well, firstly, as a human being, I wasn't allowed out the front door unless I was going for a walk or to the supermarket. So I had no excuses but to get on with writing this book. So that was a good thing. Yeah, real bonus. Yeah, real bonus. No distractions. Um, but then I thought, well, what do I do? You, how do you write a novel set in 2020 and pretend that COVID's not happening? So I thought, well, I'm just going to play out these lives against COVID. So um, it was very exciting because I don't know if you remember, but in those early days, every day at one o'clock, yeah. we got a rushed few more to the ins- rushed to the TV, the numbers, mm. but also in those early days, the instructions on how we would live our lives for the next foreseeable future. We used to have um, a sweepstake with our family on a family sort of thing. <laughs> what are the numbers going to be today? Yeah. And we sort of were adding points to... I can, you know, like how many will it be today and how many deaths kind of thing. Yeah. And it was every day. Yeah. And the messages going back and forth. It was actually a way of keeping keeping together. Yeah. Or keeping some sort of family normality. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, you know, in my in my lifetime, I've never, I don't think I've ever lived through a, a stranger period, no, you know. I don't think And it was has. moving so quickly. Anyway, so I was writing in the mornings and I would actually, and I was writing in real time. So what I was writing on the page was the situation today and for my characters who already had their li- complicated lives established when COVID hit, just like all of us had complicated lives going on. You know, life continued and we all had to adjust. So they had to adjust with their particular challenges they were going through and they, had, they were going through some big ones by this stage of the book. You've mentioned about Tommy, now that Tommy has some issues. And I quote, Tommy likes his loops intact connected, sturdy and infinite construct and you've said he was on the spectrum, it's very very you know, easy to pick up he's on the spectrum but you never say exactly what is Tommy's issue, was that was there a reason for that? Um, I think um, it, I mean I modelled Tommy on a couple of young men that I know that are on a spectrum Asperger's who are you know, completely functioning in life and joyful people, um, and but they look at life very clearly, black and white. What are the rules? Mm. I want rules, you know, the mm. the finite loops. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, in some ways, this new world we were living in, where the rules were so strict, you know, what you can and cannot do, um, perfect for Tommy. Mm. We're allowed to do this, but we're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. You know, it was... It, and no surprises. No surprises. And, um, yeah, so your question was uh, what exactly it was. It was. I mean, Tommy goes to university and he's brilliant at the things he does because he... Geometry and calculus. Yeah, yep, yeah. the maths. He's a maths freak. He loves maths, which is, you know, a character that I could never understand as a person. So I, I actually had to consult a, a PhD in um, a, a woman who has a PhD in geometry to make sure I wasn't making a complete fool of myself with, with the maths in the book. But um, yeah, well, so that's actually, Tommy's world. You did actually write it and give 
a copy or a draft to a friend of yours whose son you had modelled on. Yeah. And what did she tell you? Well, she told me that I'd been too kind in the first draft. She said, you know, you've captured probably 75% of his personality. She said, but what's missing from here is the anger, the raging anger that, and she's talking about her son, that he felt when the world didn't conform to the rules as he understood them and the fact that that anger would be taken out on those closest to him, which for my friend was her, mm. and a, a cruel rages. Um, and so she said, you go back and you put those in the book too. And what did she say at the final draft? Oh, she said, yes, now we've, we've got, got him. Right. We've got him, mm. yeah. So there you are, sitting at home, writing in covid what was your what was your process on a, on a daily basis apart from the one o'clock news? Right. Um, well, my good writing times in the morning. So I'd get up and write. I kind of write for two or three hours without any distractions, and then because of we were in the weird world of one o'clock, you know, mm. change, um, I would stop then and I would see what the new rules are, and I would. I very rarely write in the afternoon, but perhaps in the evening go back and start where I want to be the following morning. With the so new I've got, rules. New yeah, with the new rules. Yeah. So basically the government was giving you the plot for your book. <laughs> yes, and I am grateful for that. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope that you did vote for Jacinda after giving you, having given you those, all those details. Yeah. <laughs> As a reader, I found it almost surreal, the COVID aspect, reading about something that, as you have said, was like no other experience any of us have mm. lived through, you know. And did you at any stage, or did Fergus at any stage say, oh, I'm not sure if it's too early? Yes, I, and it was on my mind. But, you know, well, firstly, at a practical level, I'm halfway through a novel that's set in 2020. You can't, I don't think you could write a 2020 novel and not reference COVID because it's not just New Zealand, it's global. So you couldn't even do a, you know, oh, look, I actually, I think I might base this in Australia because, you know, you couldn't take your story anywhere else. Um, it had, you know, it had to incorporate COVID. Um, but what I focused on um, in terms of thinking about is it too early to write about COVID, I thought... Everyone in this book had big dramas going on in their lives and I hope that the reader is up and running with those dramas and engaged in the characters before COVID came along. So what happens to them during COVID is what happened to us during COVID. And COVID, although it's utterly present, it really just provided a landscape on which all the existing dramas could continue to be played out. I know one reviewer of the book made a comment about when um, Charlie ends up sleeping with the next-door neighbour, David Briscoe, because they've been sharing a cigarette through the fence, and the, re <laughs> the reviewer said, oh, that's ridiculous, that would never have happened during COVID. <laughs> well, actually, I'm sure it did, because I know I got very close to our neighbours, not to the having an affair situation, <laughs> but, but certainly sharing a drink over the fence. Yeah. You know, that, that became quite yeah. standard for us. Yeah. Well, it provided an opportunity for characters to pe behave oddly. Mm. Yeah, and also to misbehave. So, you know, we may have had our rules about where we could go and what we could do, but not everyone obeyed them. No. And my char characters were amongst the, the those that, that didn't. didn't. Yeah. But as you say, it was the perfect um, environment for someone like Tommy. Mm. Your friend who 
fed you the information that gave you the seed for this book. Yeah. How did she get on in life? Uh, she 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 got past her experience. She's um, she's married with two lovely sons who are very good friends of my children. Um, she's had she's had a great life, and I was very um, the, negotiating with her. The telling of the story, this book would never have been written um, without her permission and her blessing. And she's been on board. She's been on board from start to finish. Yeah. You when we were talking earlier, you were telling me that since you've written the book and um, have, you know people have interviewed you, whether it's Kim Hill or in, in a situation like this. You've had people come to you that were actually on that flight. Yes, I've had two others. So I, I created a fictional three characters, but those flights would take up to 30 women um, each flight. time. Wow. And so the reality of the flight, which was a real flight, there were a lot more than my three characters. And I've had two other women stay behind at events like this and stayed and stayed, and I could see they were waiting to talk to me, but not with anybody else around and they they came and they said yes I was on that flight because they remember the delay yeah well wow, which must... is incredible yeah and in fact one of them and you know obviously nobody will ever know the identities of these people but one of them knows my friend <laughs> and they will never know that about each other but you know I know that they were both on the same flight so. how does it make you feel when they come up to you and say that I mean you actually had touching a real co- true chord? Um, well, we've, we've had tears. We've had lots of tears, actually. And um, and I have felt a burden of um, am I triggering things for people, which obviously this can be a triggering book. And um, But they have said that they're actually really pleased that somebody's written about that period of mm. New Zealand history. Um, mm. And... and and the um, personal, a personal fallout from the decisions that had to be made during that 18 months. Having read it, I think it's absolutely right for being made into a television drama. Oh, thank you. Do you? Would, would you say yes if somebody came to you? No, I that? think I would. Because yeah. I think that the, the story of that 78 period yeah. is, is, needs to be told, but also that the COVID period is going to turn out to be you know, dramatised at some stage. Mm, yeah. So you're also, a, um, you know, you teach creative writing. Yeah. You were a journalist yeah. before you went into that. As I think my husband would say, well, isn't journalism more creative writing? <laughs> but, um, it's what my news editor said to me once too. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but you teach creative writing. Yeah. What is, I mean, I'm always intrigued by that. What, is, what does it actually mean, creative writing? Um, well, that's a good question. I teach fiction. So I teach short fiction. I, I, I teach an undergrad class at Victoria University um, in short fiction, short stories, um, of course, novels. Um, but creative writing can encompass a lot of different genres. So I've, I thought one of the most exciting areas of creative writing, I think, especially in New Zealand at the moment, is creative nonfiction which um, we essays, personal essays, memoir, um, just really fabulous um, hybrid almost of fact and imagination. Um, and we have some fabulous creative nonfiction writers here in New Zealand. Um, Ashley Young, um, uh, you know, I could I could list 
dozens probably. But well, how did you get on? Did you have to do Zoom lessons during COVID with your classes? I was fortunate in that my classes have all hit these windows where we've been able to teach in person. Um, you just couldn't see their faces. No, behind masks. I was telling Tessa before that I saw my the full faces of my last cohort of students at our gathering at the end of term um, when we met to eat and drink and share our work for the final time and I actually saw what my students look like and so yeah I mean it's really tricky teaching in a room where you only see the eyes and you crack a joke and you can't tell if they're going or laughing or you know it's very discombobulating yeah yeah Yeah. we were just talking about how we don't recognize people in the supermarket (laughs) with masks on and you feel very rude yes you do my guest this evening, Steve Brawny, is one of New Zealand's best-known journalists and authors. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022. As an author, uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this. And I kid you not, by the way, uh, Blenheim. And I think I've been to I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball, but. Uh, Of all of them, uh, I've been here twice before, and this is the best. This is actually the best. Thank you. It's it's just the vibe of it. It's really great. It's really welcoming and friendly. I had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. He said, oh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going to... uh, going to Blenheim for the Literary Festival, the Books Festival, and he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go. How much do you encourage people to write about what they know rather than pure fiction and creative writing? Um, I think I think um, for people that are beginning to write fiction, it's, a, it's an easier way in to writing fiction if you base base your stories on things you know. I mean, at a pure energy level, you don't have to go off and do a lot of research. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, it's the old adage, write what you know or write what you don't know. Um, and, you know, I knew this world. This is I've never had the experience of having to go to Australia. This is not me. But I knew this world intimately because I grew up during that period. Um my next, my next project, which I've just started really, is a whole world that I don't know, but I'm intrigued by. And so that's going to take a whole lot more work before I can actually really get up and planning with, with that writing. Now, you teach creative writing in, the, in women's prisons. A men's prison. And men, how does that start? How did that come about? Um, it, there's a uh, charitable trust in Wellington called Right Where You Are. And um, it has been operating, I think, now for about six years in Rimataka Men's Prison and Arahata Women's Prison. And I teach with another fabulous writer, William Brandt, and I teach in the men's prison. Um, so the, the, the kind of thinking behind that is bringing creative writing to people who have limited access to it. I established a, a similar program when I lived in Auckland at Women's Refuge, mm. and I uh, um, taught in Women's Refuge creative writing um, in one of the safe houses for about four years. And then when I came to Wellington four years ago, um, the, the right where you are seemed like a natural fit. 
um, for the work I was doing. So I joined the prison team. Um, I'm just thinking that for people, you know, this write what you know, this could be quite cathartic for prisoners. Yeah. It could be the first time that they ever actually talk yes. to anyone or express what actually happened and put them behind bars. Yeah, yeah. Well, with the unit we teach in is a very successful therapy unit and it's for um, men who have committed very violent crimes and it's wall-to-wall therapy, their day their days look like wall-to-wall therapy. They, they're in the unit just before they're eligible for parole. It's a very sought-after to get a bed in that unit. and um, so. But we are, we are not therapists. We, um, and we have no other staff in the room when we teach. When we Is it a bit scary as a woman being in there? Uh, no, I don't know. you know that have created violent deeds? No, I'm not frightened by it at all. It, you know, it's, it's self re- the room self-regulates because if there's any problem, then the course would just be closed down immediately. Yeah. And um, these men are in there and they, it's an opt-in thing. They don't have to do it. And they come in, and you're quite right, they start to write about their lives um, and they're not in the room with anybody who's taking notes on their behaviour or what they're saying or anything. And for a lot of men, this is the first time anybody has actually just kind of said, you're a great writer, let's get on with it. So, Are the stories all about innocence? Uh, the stories are about all sorts of things, mm. yeah. yeah. They've been inside for a long time because of the nature of their crimes. So they imagine a world outside the prison walls and mm. it's, it's poignant, it's heartbreaking and it's hopeful, yeah. I see a, a journal in there, you know, a book yeah. to be written with those stories. Yeah, yeah. we with do the publish their stories at the end of each course but um, they, it's only for the men and for the unit. They, mm. they, they can't go out into the outside world, so, which is a shame. Yeah, it is yeah. a shame. Could that change? No, I don't think so. That's what a condition the- of us being allowed to be in there. What about the women's prison at Ahata? To be honest, I have not. I've only done one or two um, one-off sessions there. Um, I feel, strangely enough, I feel far more comfortable in a a men's prison than a woman. You know, if you're a woman writer and you go into a woman's prison, the um, the kind of the vibe in the room can be a little bit different. Um, Whereas the men, it's very, very clearly a atmosphere of respect. For me, yeah. Um, yeah so so too much taken, to lose. Yeah, and also that you've taken the time. Somebody's taken an interest in them. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, do you, with your creative writing courses, do you ever sort of view them and think, oh, I've got a Catherine Mansfield here? Yeah. Yeah. Have you often, seen that? I often. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, the courses I teach are often the entry level students who take my course which is a year two university course, are often got their eye on the master's course, the famous Bill Manhire master's course. And then then there's a PhD offered after that as well. So this is their first, often their first foray into writing fiction. And um, everybody arrives in a room feeling nervous and, mm. and it's a workshop. So, you know, it's critiquing each other's work from that day. That must be so hard. Critiquing. To be in that same situation where everybody's critiquing yeah. your work. Yeah, well, everyone's on a level playing field. So, you know. Did you ever offer up any of your work to be critiqued while you were writing loop tracks? No, I never put my own work in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> that would be terrifying. That would it? be. Yeah. 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 What would they say? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you must critique your own work. Do you do it in the same way you critique your students? Yes. 
Yeah, same rules. Good writing is good writing, you know. So what so are those rules, um, basically? We all want to be creative writers. All right. <laughs> Pens out, everybody. Um, show, don't tell is the big one, you know. Show us the scene. Show us the emotion. Don't tell us about it. I mean, that's a pretty golden rule, and if you start writing with that in mind, then... Show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. How different is it to journalism? I mean, in journalism, you write a story, you, your first paragraph has to give you yes. the meat of it. Yeah, and then the, the, the opt-out pyra- yeah. inverted yeah. pyramid, pyramid, I remember yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it the same with fiction? Well, it's... Sh- I mean, you set the scene so beautifully in this in 1978 that you just want to find out what happens with Charlie. Yeah. And then so you, that, that drags you in beautifully, like yeah. a first paragraph yeah. should. The first chapter, I wonder, is that what... Yeah, I mean, I always start writing a fiction piece by just writing writing a scene, and a, you know, a scene that you can imagine yourself in as one of the characters, or sitting on the shoulder of a character and and watching what's going on. I guess it's the same premise. You're right. You know, grab your reader, lock them in so they don't want to put the book down, just as you would do with a good newspaper article. Now, you've written two books of short stories yeah. and another novel before this. What do you prefer? Short stories or the longer fiction? Um, apples and pears, really. Uh, two completely different experiences as a writer. I feel, even though I, t- I teach short fiction, I, I actually, I think it's harder to write mm. short fiction than a novel. Um, you know, I think the, it's the American writer, Laurie Moore, who's written both, says a sh- short story is a affair and a novel is a marriage. And it does feel like that. You know, short story, in, out, exciting. Every word has to earn its place on the page. And this is something I am always talking to my students about. What are these adverbs doing here? You know, get rid of them. We, we, you've shown us this already. We don't need you then to describe it again for us. Um, whereas you lock in with a novel and you, you have to be sure you're going to be able to go the distance with it. Well, that that there's there's something at the heart of it, this pulsing energy, that's going to see you through three hundred pages. You well, I think that's what um so interesting when you said it's the journey, not the destination that you haven't planned out. Yeah. This is how I want it to end. Yeah, I never know. I I never know what's going to happen to these characters, but I well, that don't... terrifies me the thought of that. Oh well, that's exciting for me. Yeah. yeah. See, if I knew, if I'd known what was going to happen. After Charlie got off the plane, I wouldn't have bothered writing the book because I knew already. And you had nothing to give. Yeah, well, I had nothing to discover. <laughs> so writing is a discovery for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thankfully COVID came along and gave you part of the journey. Yeah. 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 So this next one that you're working on, tell mm. us a little bit about that. It's got a lot of work in it. Um, I can't say too much about it because it's like really early days and I am still doing the research. I, w- I will say that it involves a community that I'm very close to, but I'm not a part of. How mysterious, but I'm not going to say anything more than that. And it involves a secret language that I've discovered existed in this country That's interesting at a certain time. You, you're quite, Charlie's quite involved with language in this yeah. because she has something I've never had. She gets lost for words. Yeah. And so that comes... <laughs> That comes up in here. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the opposite of stuttering. Yes. And it is actually a... It's a condition. Condition. Yeah. And I had to do a lot of research around that as well. I and I have to figure, find that one and see if I can discover how to get it. 
Yeah, um, and I consulted a couple of linguistic experts on it as well, again, to make sure I wasn't making a complete fool of myself in the book, uh, in my interpretation. So linguistics are obviously something you're quite interested in, secret language. Yes, Mm. yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, as a kid I loved codes and, you know... Invisible ink, and you know, you could be hitting Dan Brown. You realize that, don't you? <laughs> oh, oh dear. <laughs> well, the secret codes of invisible yeah, ink, you know? Yeah. No, I'd like to ask how did you start writing? I mean, why did you give up journalism? Why? Uh, um, it was, it was purely practical. Um, I, my last full time journalism job was at the Evening Post. Um, and I think I, as Bev here, yes, um, I worked with Bev Dool back in the day. We met each other again the other night. Um, Evening Post and um, my husband got a job in France and off we went to France and that was in 1991, 92. We headed to France and lived there and I had twins while I was in France and then arrived back in New Zealand in 95, pregnant with our third child, and I actually wanted to go back to the Evening Post, and but I just realised that it was an evening paper, you had to be at work by 6.37 in the morning, and it was just not practical for somebody who had two-year-old twins and a, another baby on the way. So and I imagine it would have been quite difficult with your husband being in such a high-profile position. To be a journalist, you know. Yeah, he wasn't in a high-profile position back in those days, no. but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, I came back and, I, and I'd always had this, I, I set myself up as a freelance contract writer. I was very busy with that work, but I'd always had this hankering to write fiction. They say every journalist has a book in them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually, my first foray into fiction was as a student of the course that I now teach. That was my first, and William Brand, who still teaches it, we teach it, um, we share the year between us, um, he was my first fiction teacher. What a teacher. huge honour to have gone to that course and now to be teaching it. Yeah, it's funny, I sat in the room for the first time teaching it and I thought, you know, it's a big loop. <laughs> a loop has occurred. <laughs> I wanted to ask about that, where does the title come from? Does it come from Susie's music that is loop tracked, or is it because of... Tommy liking everything to be intact or because it almost comes full circle in a loop with Jenna who Charlie thinks might be pregnant mm. and who wants to help her to ensure... It came from all of those places. I mean, I would never write a book. I don't think writers generally think about themes when they write books. They write the story and the readers see the themes but at a certain point I had to introduce Tommy to the real world so Tommy's lived a very um, closeted life with his grandmother until he first girlfriend comes along, first year at uni, and she wants to bust him out into the outside world. And, um, I, you know, I remember sitting there one day thinking, how am I going to get Tommy into the world? And so Jenna takes him to a music, um, to a gig in Wellington, and it's a loop music artist. And how that works is it's one person, but they record, they've got a machine, it's called a loop machine, and they record one series or one round of music I don't know the right words to describe this but they record it and then they layer something else over the top of it and this goes on and on and on until it sounds like you've got a whole band behind you and it's just you Mm. it's still just one person and I thought ah 
that's how Tommy enters the world because he, he would never have been that. able to walk into a noisy bar and have a band blaring at him. He wouldn't have coped with that. But he's actually watching the looping and he can cope with it because he's understanding, he's understanding the mathematics of music that's mm. going on as well. And that's his, that's his entry point into the adult world with this lovely young woman who's looking after him. And the loop artist in the book is actually Jenna, the girlfriend's older sister, Susie. So um, that's, where I, that's where I got my title from, Loop Tracks. And it's funny, once you have a title and you have this, you do start, start to see in the work yourself. You see the... Do you write to a title or does the title come from the writing? It, it just came half, comes halfway through, yeah. And you came, chose that? You didn't? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I wondered whether, you know, the publisher says no. It's yeah, well, either. they've got to approve it, but yeah. we agreed on it. Yeah. So, yeah, that was easy. Mm. Yeah. Right, has anybody got any questions for Sue while we're here? We do have a microphone, and I ask, please, if you would use it, because this is being recorded for a podcast, so we just don't want the answers to appear on the podcast with an empty um, space in between. They'll think that I finally got that disease, whatever it is, and lost my will to speak. <laughs> is this working? Yes. yes, it is. I thought your book was wonderful, but I did find it very confronting. Yeah. I searched for my firstborn son when he was nearly 50, having been to the movie of Philomena. Yes. Um, and um, it took quite a while, but it worked mm. out very, very successfully. I'm pleased. But I have to say that if I had read your book at that stage, I think I wouldn't have looked. Right. Um, and my question to you is, um, did you base... Charlie's son's character on the work you did in prisons? No, no, I didn't. I w um, I w and I would never actually use the experience of anybody I've met in prison in that way. It would, it would not feel morally right for me to do that. But I did need him to be... I did need a character in there to upset the, the kind of predictable... A predictable, sometimes predictable, joyful reunion of mother and son, um, because it doesn't always work out like that. And I must say, I'm so pleased that it's worked out for you. Um, but it doesn't always work out like that. And we have a man in the world who's got his own life. He's had his own life, lots of problems. He's a he's a he's a unlikable character. There's not much to like about him. Um, but he's a he's a, he's a foil he's he's a foil in the book you to all to the goodness. You always have to have a baddie, yeah, to sort of yeah. even out the goodness. Yeah, the and there's so much we don't know about his life. Mm. Um, and people have asked me if I would write a sequel to the book about him, and it's something that's sitting in the back of my mind to explore what's happened to him in life because we know so little. I know so little about him. I don't know anything about him. You haven't him. been on his journey yet. No, I haven't been on his journey yet, but um, so what he continues to um, he continues to interest yeah. me. Yeah. What we're actually talking about is the son that Charlie has yes. comes back into <clears throat> her life later on, mm. and obviously Tommy, the grandson, is his actual son, and he's been dumped on Charlie mm. at the age of four by his father, and then his father comes back into the book at 
during COVID. Mm. So, and it is quite confronting. And it's interesting you bring up it's not always picture perfect. Yesterday, we I talked to Ruth Shaw, and she was talking about meeting up with her son who was adopted out. And her husband, Lance, said it was picture perfect. There were these mm. two people, each looked at each other, burst in big smiles, burst into tears, and hugged. Mm-hmm. ran to each other and hugged and said, it's exactly as you imagined <laughs> yeah. it would happen. Yeah. But it can't always be like that. It can't that. always be like mm. that. No. 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 It is, uh, I must say, there are quite a lot... Thank you for that question. There are quite a lot of confronting issues in yeah. here. Uh. <laughs> well, there is that. There's alcoholism, there's addiction. Yeah. There's a whole lot of issues in, yeah. in here yeah. that are quite confronting. Yeah. Was it confronting to write? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm. And um, I always just let the characters develop and let them head off on their on their way and I, I sit on their shoulders and see where they're going. And, um, you know, some people have said to me, oh, how did you manage to plan all these issues into the book? And I said, I plan nothing. I sit on the shoulders of ordinary flawed human beings and see what comes their way. I think that must be the beauty about the journey, not the destination. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and so uh, writing it, nothing felt forced about it. It was just, this person's got this problem to deal with, and this one over here, and this problem over here. Oh, and it's COVID. Well, how's she going to muddle along? How did we all muddle along? Well, we just did, mm. and they just do, you know. And not, not with great outcomes always, because that's life, but we muddle along. Would this book have occurred if COVID hadn't? Yes, it would have, yeah. It would obviously be an entirely different book, but I still would have had my characters played out against, you know... A different the run up, The run-up to the general election and the abortion law reform, which actually only went through... Last year. Last year, yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, yeah, Kirsten. Oh, kia ora and namahinui for your fabulous books. So I so enjoyed it. And I hope that the question I'm going to ask isn't um, too confronting or political, but I'm really <laughs> curious about... Roe v. Wade and the uh, current situations yes, that are yeah. playing out oh, in the US, yeah. and what your take in is uh, on is if you were to write the book now, yeah. what would it look like, and how it, how would it be the same or different to two years ago? Oh, that's a Thank great you. question. I wonder if I could have another crack at writing a, a version too. Um, well, I think, like, firstly, Roe versus Wade reminds us all how fragile. Um, legislation is and how political will can turn and gain a momentum that is terrifying for a lot of people. Mm. Um, Nothing is set in stone and, um, you know, at a political level here in New Zealand, I can't, you know, I can't imagine that happening, but, you know... You can't take it for granted. You can't take anything for granted and this is the really interesting thing about, you know, the protest movement, anti-abortion movement in New Zealand. It's always there. It's all, you know, and I suppose it's just about being vigilant at a personal level, at a political level, at a social level about the winds of change and being aware of a change. (laughs) I wonder what Dame Margaret Barrow would think now. About... Roe versus Wade. I I saw her interviewed on TV a couple of weeks ago, and and I think she kind of echoed that idea about you know nothing, nothing, nothing's nothing's set in stone. Be vigilant. It could happen here. How interesting. I wonder if you know, like when you talked about doing following Jim up. I mean, 
if you did that, would you start the book the same or would you have to change it? I would have to have a big think about both of those mm. things. I mean, I wouldn't... I like the idea of it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, do too, it, yeah. I do, too. I do, too. And we if could I have had... sowed a seed here. Yeah. And then when, you, then when you win great awards for your second novel, you can say it all came from the Marvel Book Festival. <laughs> Kirsten McDougall, who's on after me, um, and please stay for her session um, because it's she, she's a killer. It's a fabulous book. Kirsten and I uh, did a wee book event in Wellington recently and it was attended by a book club, members of a book club, and they actually wrote the sequel for Loot Tracks. <laughs> <laughs> and they decided it was going to be set in Palmerston North. <laughs> so so we've already got our setting sorted. Oh, and how and did so, it go? I was born in Palmerston. I mean, I grew up in Palmerston North. Oh, look, there it would have to be bad <laughs> set in Palmerston North. Sort of well, like, well, I hate to say, but that was their view yeah. as well. Oh, so. right. <laughs> There's a reason I am as I am, Ross. Palmerston North. It's all there. What actually, what did they write? I mean, can you tell us? Oh, no, they didn't write. It was just a forum much like this, actually, where it just, this, you know, the idea for the sequel kind of got up and running. Oh, no, I like it more that it came from the Marlborough Book Festival. (laughs) Okay, we'll we'll stick with that. (laughs) You've only actually done a couple of things on your book because, and it must be gutting to actually work that hard on a book. It was released last year, but, of course, festivals were cancelled all over the country. And so you haven't actually been able to get out and promote it Interesting, the book festival that you have done was in Adelaide. Yeah. So it's a very New Zealand book in the sense yeah. of numbers and the election and everything else. Yeah. How did it go down in Australia? Um, it went really well. And um, it's interesting that, you know, um, New Zealand women were travelling to Australia, but, you know, the different states in Australia had different rules and regulations as well. So the book was published by an Australia publisher in March and so fortunate to be able to go to Adelaide Writers Festival and the the book was kind of launched there at at that time. I met the publisher for the first time, she was from Perth Um, and what happened afterwards when people were coming up to talk to me, they'd come from all around Australia and talked about, you know, that you know, it's the same stigma. There was the same stigma there. The the laws and regulations were different and easier, um, easier to perhaps procure a legal abortion mostly. But um, you know, the shame and the stigma is universal. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, the the feeling I came away with was that it's a universal story. And of mm. course, Ireland, they were only mm, a, a yeah. year or so. Yes. ahead of us and changing abortion law there. That actually was the first thing I thought when I read this. Yeah. I thought, oh, my God, uh, all the books I've read about Ireland and having to get, you know, go to England. Go to England, yeah. And it just I hadn't yeah. realised that this was happening in my era, Yeah. you know, here in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So how do you go about getting published overseas like you did with this? I mean, are there more other countries that this is likely to come out in? Um, well... That would be wonderful. Well, um, it is a universal story, as you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened for me was I um, published here and I got an agent who is actually Australian, but he lives in Germany. And he took the book on and because his history was as a bookseller in, um, originally in Australia, so all his contacts are mostly there. And he took it, sent it out to several publishers that he thought might be interested in. And I was very fortunate 
the first person who read it came back and said, yes, I want this book. So it, it went off the market at that point. So I don't know how, you know, if there would have been more interest or not, because we were, once she said yes, we Wow, said, what elation. How did you feel when he told you that? Oh, I couldn't believe it. Mm. I couldn't believe it, yeah. yeah and now, you know, um, now it's been kind of sent out to publishers in the US, of course, Roe versus Wade, as it, the terrible thing that it is, has... Mm been you know it's helped my book mm. get it in front of publishers um and also england so i have no expectations i've never had any expectations outside new zealand for the book i felt it was such a new zealand story so anything that's happened over and above the wonderful treatment it's had from um to hearing a walker university press which is the former vup um any, I've been so well treated by them that anything is a bonus over and above that. Are you good at selling your book? I mean, Ruth Shaw was saying that she couldn't sell a book if she tried. It's up oh. to her husband to go around and say, "Oh, <laughs> see, this my wife wrote this, and you better buy it." Yeah. I mean, do you do you have somebody doing that for you? Well, that that is the job of the publisher, really. Right. Um, and I reckon it must be hard to. Yeah, uh, sell yourself. Oh yeah, no, no, not my thing at all. I mean, my kids go into bookshops and make sure it's. There are, there are 10 copies of it across the shelf. Yeah, and I say, well, that's really obvious. You know, you could just do a couple, maybe. But yeah, no. They no. must be so proud of you, though. Yeah, they are. I yeah, think they, they are. They want to see your name up there. Yeah. 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 Um, so everybody, you have to buy it for her sons for no other reason. So is there any other questions? Because we've got a couple of minutes left before the session ends, and Kirsten makes her way up here for her session. No? Oh, yep. yes. Thanks, Duncan. Just wait, the microphone's on its way. Hi, Sue. Hi. Actually, I think you're going to come to my book club soon, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I'm just interested in how you develop characters. Like, how do you find those characters and how do you create them? And then do you... I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you know people, but then yeah. you're actually shaping them in a different way. Yeah. And, and, and then how do you do that? And then do you like them? Yeah. Really good question. So I think every writer start, maybe starts in a different way. I know writers who start with a landscape. Kirsty Gunn, New Zealand writer who lives in England or possibly even Scotland, I'm not quite sure. Apparently she starts with a, a, a literally a landscape. Imagine looking out here and thinking, who lives here? What do they do? But the landscape is so strong, it's the, it's the kicking off point that the landscape is a, almost a character in the book. Me, not so much. So for me, and I've thought of, been thinking a lot about this because I'm just starting to think about a new work. So what are the catalysts? There are two things. Something somebody tells me that I just go, oh my God, I've got to write about that. And it'll be a weird little thing. So for this book, it was not, oh, I had to go to Australia for an abortion. It was the plane was delayed. And I just went, oh God. You yeah, know, I would have fine. loved to have written the whole book in the six hours, but I'm not that good a writer. I couldn't do that. So that was the, that was the tingle. And then I think, well, who, who are the people? Okay, who's, who's my character? And what's she going to do? And then I just start thinking. At the, they're purely fictional. They really are. Of course, you draw on everything you know about people. But um, So I don't start writing. The thing I've learned four books on is don't start writing until you've got a really good sense of who this person is. 
Your main not, character. Yeah, main character. And then the others will fall into place around them. But not, and I'm not saying, you know, profiled, you know, 16-year-old girl. It's deeper than that. It's, it's an understanding or a suspicion of their fears and their flaws and their unpredictability. And then I start. And I am literally in the head of that person. That person, I'm, I, I've, I inhabit that character. So is it hard to let them go? When oh, I have never let the, any of them go. So yeah. you're still living them. <laughs> I'm still living these ones. Yeah. The most recent work, yeah. I, 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 I dream about them. Yeah. They're real people. Yeah, they, I can visualise them. Become part of your life. Yeah. I yeah. can imagine that. Yeah. So that's, yeah, characters. Um, and the times that I've started writing without locking, it feels like a locking in of to a personality, then I've, I've, um, I've faltered. So that's what I've learnt, you know, after you know, two books of short stories and two novels, don't start until you've got a sense of the energy of that person, what that feels like, and then rely, just rely on them. Because the bonus of waiting is then you don't actually have to think up anything. They're, they're doing it. They're, they're, they're driving the book. They're driving the book forward. And, you know, sometimes I'm writing and I think, oh, God, what do they do that for? That's not a good idea, but they've done it, so on we go, you know. It's almost like being voyeuristic. It is, it is, yeah, yeah. Looking in over someone's yeah. shoulder. And uh, that's the alchemy, for me, that's the, that's the reason I write fiction, is those those surprises. When I, you know, I'm typing away and I thought, oh, God, well, that's, a curve, really, that's a curveball. She wouldn't really sleep with that man, She would wouldn't she? have, re- yeah, 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 and yet. And, <laughs> yeah. and she threw out her... her Polar fleece. Polar fleeces. Yeah. No one would do that. <laughs> Not a Marlborough. We all need our polar fleeces. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the answer. Any yeah. other questions? Um. Oh, we'll wrap it up then. Well, Sue, thank you, and thank you for your honesty and and your great advice. Actually, it's a great book. And as you said earlier, there are, it is for sale out in the foyer. Sue will sign. Please just wear a mask if you're going up. And actually, please wear a mask out there when you're buying all that wine with 10% off. Um, <laughs> I was, oh, my last bit of advice, if, serv- if, if it's low alcohol wine that they're serving, you probably have to have double what you thought you might want this morning. So have another glass, maybe. What happens with no alcohol? Oh. Don't drink it. <laughs> okay. Right. So thank you very much, Sue, and thank you, you very much Thanks, to you, Tessa. the audience. That was Sue Orr speaking to Tessa Nicholson at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening.